How's it going? It's going good. There's been some really cool fossil news uh, happening. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and also, I watched The Dig last night on Netflix. Oh, you know. Have you seen that yet? I watched another movie, too. I did watch The Dig, and I watched another movie called Ammonite last night. Oh, you did? You went down the... Uh... Well, yeah, but it's there's some, there's some cool stuff about it. I could give you my review of it, but I think having watched The Dig and Ammonite, um, two very different films. Sure. And uh, with The Dig, it's, it's pretty much The Dig, and it's like a lot about The Dig and some of the personalities, but really Ammonite, the movie, is about... Mary Anning. The personalities, and this, uh, you know, this, her, her inner emotional life she connects with a woman. Yeah, but I've been avoiding that because the whole connecting with a woman has been conjecture and that it's not really historical accuracy. I, I'm all for any relationship. We are totally LGBTQ friendly. Yeah, you know, but if you actually, if you Google it up and you dig a little deeper, it's kind of there. You it's can plausible. See that it's plausible. There was uh, a character, a woman who uh, spent okay. some time with her and then she, they were lifelong friends. And But what's cool, Dave? is I've never been to Lyme Regis. And yeah, so me neither. I'm watching this as a payload nerd, and the love story is a it's a great thing, but they get all the stuff pretty much right about it. It's not a lot of fossils, but there's concretions, and right, they're handling right, the right. fossils the right way. But I got to say, it's like almost an hour into it till uh, Kate Winslet, who plays Mary Anning, smiles. Oh, no. You know? Yeah. But... And it's a, and she doesn't well, get the credit Victorian, she deserves and all that. They're so downtrodden. Yes, they're but so I, repressed. But I have a question though: um, Is it about Mary Anning, the great woman fossil discoverer, or is it about her and her relationships? That is pretty much. It's kind of the backstory, and I think that another another yeah. film could be done that really explores her um, her achievements. But you get some of that, you know. Yeah. It kind of ends at the British Museum and her looking at some of the specimens and. She did some incredible things in her life as she faced a lot of adversity, and yeah. she's truly a remarkable and inspirational character. And discovered her first ichthyosaur at the age of 11, man. Yeah. And she was struck by lightning as a baby and wow. all this other good stuff. So none of that's in the film. So Right. And so do you think paleontologically, down the paleo nerd wormhole, was it, was it fulfilling? From a paleo aspect, not really. Right. You lose. Right, but okay. I mean, I, I wanted more close-up to the Ammonites and yeah, yeah, the fossils. Let me see what you got there. But the, they, you, you get the occasional ichthyosaur survival. But yeah. what'd you think of the dig? I love the dig because it put the spotlight on Mr. Brown, who really was the one that did all the backbreaking work. Yeah, and uh, he wasn't acknowledged after the war, but they finally put his name and uh, Mrs. Pretty's name on the display at the British Museum. Which, by the way, is my favorite room at the British Museum, is the Hoard Room. Oh, right, right. And, and I'm not too sure if this is in the Hoard Room. I kind of think it is. Um, it's called the Sutton Who Treasure. I have no idea why. We'll have to Google that. Oh, I Googled it up. Well, uh, why is there, it called Sutton some, Who? And actually, in the dig, they didn't show some of the real treasures. There's this one uh, helmet they found there that's really... I think Sutton Who is maybe just the area, but... Um, oh, right. Right. But, you know, actually, this brings up an interesting thing, though, and we've we've explored this on our show a bit, 
is that when you see a fossil in a museum, oftentimes, you know, there's the story of the artifact, but seldom do you hear the backstory of who found it, who dug it up, like right. this incredible story of Marion Bonner and the fish within a fish at the Tyrell Museum and also the one at L.A. There's nothing about the Bonner family. Sure. You know? That's the backstory. So there's with every object in a museum, there's there's incredible depth to it. And oftentimes yeah. the collectors and even the museum staff, there's people behind all these things, is, I guess what I'm saying, and life stories and drama. So. Yeah, it's funny. The the people who discover might not necessarily be a paleontologist, so their name kind of gets lost. You know, I have a very interesting story. It was the visit to the British Museum and looking at the Elgin marbles, which are the most beautiful Greek friezes that were adorned atop the Acropolis in Athens. Yes, yeah, so and the English helped themselves to it, yes. Well, that's because the Greeks at the time were storing explosives and ammunition at the Acropolis without regard to the fact that by one accidental match, the entire Acropolis could vanish in a heap of rubble because of irresponsibility. So, yes, there's a big controversy about whether the Sir Elgin should have taken these marbles, but he he says, I'm taking them to protect them for all of antiquity because the Greeks aren't doing a good job. Now, I don't want to get into that. Yeah, it's the whole imperialist. Yeah, okay, yeah, go ahead. I'm not going to get into that. So I'm sitting there looking at these incredible statues, and I'm thinking, who were the carvers? Who were the guys that actually right, were right. there with the chisels? Their names are lost to antiquity. Their names are gone. And that made me think about my own mortality standing right there. This is 1989. I was in London doing a TV show. And I started thinking about my own mortality, and I thought, well, I'm going to be forgotten no matter what I do. I, I doubt I will be a Leonardo da Vinci. I doubt I'm going to be a Charles Darwin where my name lives on forever. So I will well, be dust. I'll be dust one day, okay? Yeah, yeah. But then I thought of, what if I don't have the funds to pay for really good end-of-life hospice care? This is the same thought. <laughs> I'm standing in the museum, right? And I'm thinking, what if I'm stuck in a state institution where no one really cares? And I'm lying in my own excrement for days on end. That's the last days of my life. And right then and there, Ray, yes, yes. was the very moment, Ray. You had an epiphany. That I came home and started investing in my retirement account. There you go. Self-employed, you better do something. So I would have that funds so there, yeah. I was thinking that maybe you could transfer your soul into the body of uh, Chuck, your puppet, and uh, Chuck will outlive you, but somehow you could infuse him, and he, you could live on that way. He's a puppet, Ray. Well, you could, like, do your soul Ray, transfer. he's a puppet. He's okay. a doll. He's a doll. Right. <laughs> I like the idea, though. Wait, how about tree pods? You've heard of tree pods, right? What's that? When you die, you put your dead body into the roots of a tree, and then that gets planted. I don't know. I think it's within a forest of other dead people. That's beautiful, And so man. your tree, yeah. the tree becomes, yeah. it nourishes it from you, your... man. You are yeah. the tree. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. you give life to the tree. You, you yeah. pass it on. Hey, <laughs> well, you know, so now you can actually go to the British Museum and I can guarantee you 
well, when the pandemic dies down, that you can go and you can see the actual fossils that Mary Anning collected as an 11 year old kid on the coast of uh, England, South England. In the collection and rooms as a private citizen? On display. It's on display. So oh, you right. can see okay. her, her, her stuff. And there, of course, there's more stuff in the back room. But right. anyway, sometimes the story goes on. And then you know what? You know, art is eternal, man. What yeah. we're doing here, this podcast is going to outlive us, man. Well, yeah, dude, dude, you say art is eternal, but how many cave paintings got filled in by by a flood? Yeah, but then there's Altamira (laughs) and all that good stuff, you know, 30 foot, La Chavez, whatever that one, 40,000 years. Hey, but we have an exciting guest today, right? Yeah, we do, we do. We had also exciting news about Ammonites, which is why I I, uh, watched the movie, because Finally, after all these millions and millions of fossils have been collected of, of ammonites over the years, and we've talked about this. Not one not soft one. preservation. Until it was revealed this last week, they found the soft parts. And that's so cool, eyeballs and all that. But what's so frustrating is it didn't answer the question. Tentacles, arms, how many arms did they, they even fossilize? Have any? Yeah. Did they even have any? So. Yeah. Well, they had to because... Not necessarily. We don't know. This was found in Germany, right? And they really found internal organs? I think it was found in Sonhofen, where uh, the Archaeopteryx... Was there no shell part of it? I think it was laying next to the shell. They thought something pulled it out. Another creature had sort of halfway pulled it out, and then it died. Oh, that is such a weird... But the arms, if there were arms, were not preserved, but... Actually, I think it's the same quarry, though. It's Jurassic. Well, let me ask you, Ray. When you eat squid or octopus, you don't eat pretty much... Well, I guess you do eat the head, don't you? Yeah, you <laughs> eat the... the squid. But yeah. you don't eat the head of the octopus. No, no just the arms. arms. The arms, arms are yes. the delicious part, the calamari part. Yeah, so you think somebody nibbled off the bits before it was fossilized? Could be. Could be. Some zephantinus. Uh, what year I... was this? How old was it? It's Jurassic. It's from the oh. same uh, quarry that Archaeopteryx came out oh, of, right. I think. Right. So, which is kind of cool. Yeah. But, hey, we have a cool guest today. Yeah. And uh, she actually is going to be talking about where you live, which is pretty cool, too. Southeast Alaska. She did her Ph.D. on this very area and, uh, you know, some of the particular islands here and That's all the right. cool and stuff. That's right. And where I am going to come up this summer and do some work on my property up there overlooking the ocean, overlooking the, the very terrains that we're going to be talking about. Can you define a terrain? Uh, <laughs> Can you define a terrain? A terrain is not like a train. It's I know it's terrain. funny because when I Google terrain and I ask Siri to say it, she always says train, T-R-A-I-N. Right. We're talking terrain T-E-R-A-N-E, terrain. terrain. Correct. So yeah, Southeast Alaska is composed of all these terrains, which are like these island arcs or these nope. subcontinents. subcontinents? No, a, a, a terrain is a block. You've been studying. All right. It's a block of crust. And it's not a, you know, it's not a giant continent, but it's a block that gets pushed and shoved and jumbled and turned upside down and metamorphosized. They, all these things happen to it. And you, um, you did a beautiful, beautiful drawing of the great Alaskan train wreck. The Southeast um, Alaska terrain wreck and the, these different terrains. But now we, we can actually, we, we'll dig a little deeper her. here with uh, Dr. Connie Soja. Yeah. And uh, we will get into some of these terrains. And uh, let's talk to an expert. Let's talk to Connie. Yeah. yeah let's talk to Connie Soja. Dial her up, man. Hello. 
Hey, Dave, meet Connie Soja, paleontologist and emeritus professor of geology from Colgate University in New York. She's currently living in Oregon and uh, she's emeritus and she's way cool and she's taught me so much about paleo over the years. Connie, meet Dave, my ventriloquist buddy. Hey, Dave, it's great to meet you. It is a pleasure. I cannot wait to pick your brain about all the Southeast Alaska geology. But the first question, are you a paleo nerd? Oh, wow. I'm happy you asked that because I think of you two as being the dynamic duo of paleo nerddom. <laughs> and of course, all your fans know that is a compliment. Thank yeah. you. That is a true compliment. So for me, the true story is I was late to the paleo party. Ooh. Connie, where were you born? Where did you? Where, what's your backstory? Where, where are you okay, from? Okay, well, we'll go back to the late Pleistocene. <laughs> My dad had gone to West Point, and you may know that you have to give back to West Point, so you have to continue for at least back in the fifties for four years. So he was stationed in Germany with my mom, where my older brother and I were born, ah. and then we returned to the states, and that's where my younger brother was born. So there was the three of us. But paleo nerddom for me is from the time I was a toddler and we were in Western Massachusetts, we went to the beach. We went to Cape Cod every summer with the grandparents. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's an interesting connection because I ask a lot of my students at Colgate, what are your interests in clams and snails and other things? Oh, I remember going to the beach. And of course, starfish are always a hit with kids as they are in touch pools in, in aquaria. So for me, my memories were often of fear for the invertebrates because one oh. summer there was a huge bloom of jellies oh. and they were washing up on the beach and you had to be careful because even after death, those little nidoblasts can fire, yeah. get a little sting. The stingers. And then I don't know about you, but the horseshoe crab for me as a kid was the most fearsome looking oh. critter ever. And they partially or completely bury themselves in the sediment. So your little kid going out there, you know, on two <laughs> inches of water, and all of a sudden there's this tail spike. Wow. So it was only later that I learned as a living fossil what an incredible animal the horseshoe crab is. But then there were clams and snails and other things. So I had an early introduction to marine life. But then True Confessions, you may remember the magazine from the 50s? Yeah. True yeah. Confessions? Yeah. All right. So one day, uh, let's say I'm 10 years old, fifth grade, something like that. I'm at the school bus stop and a friend comes up. She says, I'm starting a rock collection. I said, huh? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She went over and picked up a piece of gravel from the side of the road. It was like a chunky piece of gray gravel. And I hope I didn't say anything, but to myself, I said, boring. <laughs> bad start, bad start, right? But let's fast forward. So I'm now a teen, age 13. It's eighth grade. And I don't know if you had a career day, eighth grade, but we did. So we walked in. Teacher said, today's career day. Okay. She what are you going to be? This, what are you going to be? Yeah. This is the box, file box for boys with all little files. Oh. This is the file box for girls. There, there weren't so many thing. files. There was one file. And we were, supposed to, <laughs> we were supposed to file up and pick a file and go back to our seats and read about what we might do a future career. Okay, so so just near the end of the alphabet, I'm at a seat in the back. I finally get up to the front. And for girls, should we guess in the 60s? Let me see, homemaking, let me see. cooking, homemaking, homemaking, or cooking, or cleaning. Nurse. Right, or nurse. Or nurse. Right. I didn't think I had medical talents. And stewardess, which oh we used to call flight God. attendant stewardess, remember that? Now, those are all wonderful professions, don't get me wrong. But they didn't excite me on career day, eighth grade. So this, this was so out of character Connie, for me. Connie, did you I, reach I, into the boys' box? 
I did. Yes. All right. <laughs> but you know, it's so out of character because I was the shyest kid on the planet. But I distinctly remember walking over to the boys' box. And of course, what do you think some of those files said? What were the opportunities there? Scientist. Scientist. Doctor. Right. Lawyer. Uh, probably fighter jet pilot, astronaut, whatever. So I pulled, because I was at back of the class, one of the last folders from the boys' box. And what do you think it was? Geologist. Geologist. You only get two more guesses. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, uh, let me guess. Uh, uh, cancer researcher. <laughs> no. I don't Already know. Astronaut. Ready? Astronaut. This is true story. Funeral director. No uh. way. And to tell you the truth, <laughs> years later, when I'm writing my tenure statement for Colgate and reflecting on the hand went to the forehead, isn't that what paleontologists are? We are uh, the world's ultimate <gasps> funeral directors. Now, I like this. Our victims have been long dead and buried, so we exhume them, but then we spend our careers writing or painting their epitaphs. Putting makeup on them to make them look presentable it, for the public. Exactly. Oh. So I became what I, in my grumpy mood, selected. Now, well, I have Paleo to interrupt nerd real quick. Dumb. Colgate yeah. is the name of your, uh, is not a toothpaste, it's the name of your university? Yes, but there was a connection to the, the early Colgate, Colgate, Colgate yeah. family, right, right, right. which was in soap and perfumes and right. and now more toothpaste and things. And then later the family kind of separated from the university part. But there is a connection way back, yeah. If I may reflect, I was just remembering the very same things. It's so interesting that there were these career choices, but, and I was a service brat myself. My father was in the Air Force, but I went to Catholic school my first four years. And I do remember the priest coming in saying, how many of you want to be priests? And how many of you want to be nuns? And of course, we all wanted to be priests and we all, and all the ladies want to be nuns. But there was one kid who's like, I want to be a farmer. Anyways, thank you for taking me back down memory lane there. Yeah, how did you turn to paleo? Well, I saw the light in paleo, and I have to give a shout out to my mentor at Denison University in Granville, Ohio, where I went to college, Ken Bork, fabulous instructor, now living in Sedona, Arizona, just turned 80 last year with his wife, wonderful retirement, a bryozoan specialist, the little moss animal, but also historian of geology, so has gotten into the record of of major players in the field, but he was just a superb teacher and brought paleontology alive. So that's where my paleo nerddom really kicked in with a slow start. And then of course for me in grad school in Eugene University of Oregon, just two hours west of here, shout out to Norm Savage who made the opportunity to work in Southeastern Alaska, possibility for my dissertation. And Bill Orr was a great mentor as was Greg Ritalik. So. A lot of people to thank for keeping me on that precious path. So you end up in Eugene, Oregon, sort of a, a hippie kind of place in Oregon. Well, how did you and, end up in Alaska, and what year was that? Well, yeah, how did how did they send you up to Southeast Alaska? Like, we yeah. need some work done up there. Well, Norm Savage had a, a long-standing research program, Prince of Wales Island and areas to the west, 
and he's a conodont specialist. And I think in one of your other podcasts, you've talked about the conodont animal. Right. So your your listeners will already know about that. Just remind me what a conodont is. I know they have teeth. They find the teeth, right? And they're a way to measure strat- stratigraphic ages, so correct? Right. How do you say that, Ray? Stratigraphy? Connie, what's a conodont? All right. Well, the conodonts that we actually work with in fossil form are just the grasping-like elements in an eel-like right, 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 fishy right. critter. Right, right. And what's so intriguing is that upon death, all the soft tissue decays. So these grasping elements in the mouth disarticulate, and they're microscopic, and they have different shapes and forms and functions for the animals, that grasping element. But they underwent such rapid change that the people who use them as biostratigraphy tools are working with just parts of a grasping element of a larger animal to work out relative ages. Wow. Well, you say grasping element, but basically they're kind of like teeth. You're not calling them teeth. But they change so rapidly through time that you can use them as time markers. So if you find a conodont here... You could say, aha, we are at, uh, and they, they went extinct uh, in the Triassic, I believe. Yeah. Right? Right. But you could dial in, you know, Carboniferous. Right. Age correlation. So there was conodont work being done in Southeast Alaska, dating the rocks. And oh, so wait, you date the rocks and then you associate the conodont and you go, there's the connection? Uh, the conodonts are the relative age dating tool. So there's nothing in them that's radioactive. So you can't dissolve them or powder them and get a, a definitive An age. isotope, right. Right. But by all the stratigraphic relationships that have been established around the globe in areas where you have sedimentary rocks interlayered with ash beds that can be dated precisely, then you can make global comparisons or even regional stratigraphic um, oh. documentation. So that was what Norm was working on for um, many, many years and took on graduate students. And I was interested in paleontology when I started at U of O. He had also done a lot of work on brachiopods and so was aware of this special island west of Ketchikan where in 1907, a guy working for the U.S. Geological Survey had studied the entire fauna. This is a Devonian age deposit and had determined that the brachiopods and the corals and strange clams were unlike those in North America proper. And he used the word Uralian, meaning Ural Mountains of Russia, affinities. So that's kind of strange. If you think about Ray's backyard, why aren't these Alaskan? Why aren't these like other Devonian fossils found in Alaska or Washington State or other so this magic island that I've visited twice and right. I found the most amazing 3D corals. Right. Thank yes. you, Ray, by the way. Thank you for mm-hmm. that uh, introduction. Well, and I I studied up on this island uh, reading Connie's PhD paper on this, this <laughs> island. But this island represents a chunk of the Devonian that came from where? Connie, can you explain oh, well, what they're doing you a there? Ray, what they're doing there? Wait, it's a, it's I, a Loch Ness. It's what? a Loch Ness. <gasps> Connie, what is that? What's what Dave's Hey, what's Dave's Dave using the word. Let's have Dave define right. this. Loch Ness is a word I, <laughs> I just figured out from doing the research. It denotes sediment or rock that originated at a distance from its present position. Oh. Right. And it's a fancy way of saying that 
Since the 1980s, geologists have determined, and it's the best place in the world that you can see this, but we now understand it's a global phenomenon, an aspect of plate tectonics where there can be microcontinents, volcanically active island chains, uh, maybe seamounts, slivers of a continental margin that are moving with the plate on which they are attached, reach a continental margin, and the rocks are of different composition, so they're not as dense as the oceanic plate on which they ride. So instead of being subducted, they are abducted. Abducted. They become joined onto the continental margin as the so-called allochthonous or suspect or exotic terrain. So by definition, all it means is that it's a crustal fragment that has a distinct geology bounded by faults that was not a part of that continent to which it is now married. And that's the definition of a terrain? A terrain. And remember, we spell it differently from a landscape terrain, which is T-E-R-A-I-N. Right. So to avoid confusion, the early namers said T-E-R-R-A-N-E. And so Ray's backyard, yes. well, a little bit west of there and over to Prince Wales Island and then way north the and into coastal, right? named for the Alexander Archipelago, the islands that form the southeastern panhandle of Alaska, which is named for Tsar Alexander because of the Russian influence there way back in the day. So where I'm sitting right now is the Alexander terrain. So, But you're in Ketchikan. I'm in Ketchikan, so that's actually so you a different terrain. It is a different terrain. Yes. What terrain am I sitting on here right now? Okay, so you are, and you know about lumpers and splitters in paleontology, okay, right? Okay, right. Same okay, it's the thing. same thing with terrains. All right. So in the early days, there were, and still there's a lot of disagreement. Are there like two dozen terrains forming most of Alaska? Or, and now maybe it's wheedled down to maybe 18. So as we've gotten into more details, we realize, oh, we thought this was a distinctly different suite of rocks with a major fault separating Juneau, let's say, from areas to the west, and then people have decided. So, but for Ketchikan, you are in the western portions of the Taku terrain. Taku. Which is now considered the westernmost part of the Yukon Tanana terrain. Taku, right? I see. But if that. I go, if I go over a little farther, and I'm on Gravina Island, and I go to Prince oh, of Wales Island, that's the Gravina Belt. That's... The Gravina Belt is really interesting, not just because of the ichthyosaurs, and there are ammonites there too, aren't there? Yes, in Gravina. There are. Yeah. All right. So that is an over. It's a Mesozoic overlap sequence that indicates by that point in the late Mesozoic. Alexander Terrain and Taku Terrain were becoming married. So it's an overlap sequence. What? Okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> let, let, me, let me take yeah, this back. Yeah, I've got questions too. Go let ahead, me take Dave. this back a second. Yeah. In my uh, rabbit hole for this episode, Connie, I counted over 20 terrains in Alaska. Right. All right. Mm -hmm. So Alaska basically is a jumble of continental splinters. And if you were to take an animation, a Pixar animation, you'd see Hawaii. It would collide with the North American plate and it would jumble and turn and, and some things would go above. Some things would marry with other bits. I told you this earlier, Ray. It 
kind of represents when you see wind pushing broken pieces of ice onto the shore, right? Right. In fact, I love that analogy because you can think of the continental margin of North America, the western edge, over millions of years kind of being like a snowplow. Right. And you have these terrains gradually. It's not a smash up. Sure. It's, you know, moving, uh, probably moving as fast as your fingernail grows every year. Every time you clip a little bit of your fingernail, that's how much a plate has moved. And bringing some, a new entity, Hawaii would be an example of hotspot islands. So eventually they will, they're actually going in a northwesterly direction. So at some point they will meet the eastern margin of Asia. Oh. Sure. And some of that may be subducted because it's a lot of volcanic oceanic material, but some of the more differentiated rocks on the Hawaiian Islands may be scraped off, abducted, and form a new terrain in the future. So you're exactly right. The western edge of North America has been kind of like a snowplow, scraping off stuff that will not subduct. Right. Or for those of you who are aficionados, yes. it's as if western North America was reeling in the big snappers, the big marlins, the big over millions of years, like a fly fisherman woman. And how many earthquakes does this? This has got to oh. be a, a, a million earthquakes every thousand yeah. years, right? Well, I mean, that is such a, an important point. What explains the vast mountains, the highest mountains in North America and Alaska? Is the most extensive zone of minerally rich deposits, gold and everything else and the ongoing earthquake activity. That is all derived from this process of terrain accretion. All right, well, my question is, the ocean floor is more or less the Pacific Ocean floor. Just, just talk about that right. for a moment Right, Pacific, here. yeah. The, to be specific about the Pacific, um, it's like a conveyor belt, right, that is just headed toward North America, and then it subducts and all and as Kurt explained to me once, so yeah. me here the conveyor belt, then everything grinds under and basically goes back down into the inner earth, and it's kind of recycling. And there's right. nothing that's older than like 250 million years on the ocean floor because that conveyor belt only has X amount of expanse, hits North America, melts basically, and goes back. Is that a real simplistic? No, it works, and I love the conveyor belt idea too to explain terrains. Because imagine that you're going to the grocery store, right? You got the checker, you got the cashier. Don't do self-checkout. Uh, all right, all right. Yeah, You got to have the cashier there. You got with the conveyor belt. And since this is the time of COVID, what are you going to have on there? Well, you're going to have your six-pack of orange crushed soda or maybe Alaskan pale ale or Sierra. Okay, so you got that. Then, you know, you're going to have two canisters of antibacterial wipes. And so let's just whiskey, say that the whiskey. orange crushed soda represents a volcanically active island chain. Okay. And then we got the conveyor belt, which is the Pacific Ocean floor. And then to the west of there, we got our, our, our antibacterial wipes. So let's just say that's a microcontinent that's been slowly chugging along. Then we got more conveyor belt. And because it's a time of COVID, we have triple dipple packs of toilet paper. <laughs> Okay, so they're all coming towards the wonderful checkout cashier, and that conveyor belt is the Pacific floor, and it's going to subduct. It is dense. 
It is, it's got high specific gravity, and so that will sink into. It goes underneath Some the counter. Some of the stuff will go under, and goes, others will. But the orange crush soda and the beer and the antibacterial wipes and the toilet paper, they will abduct. They will stay on, on that platform in front of the cashier, and they are adding new real estate to the western edge of North America. Are you saying abduct or abduct? Abduct. OB. Yes. OB. OB. Obduct. Okay, not abduction, abduction. All right. Abduction, right. So Stephen Johnston in 2001, I think he's at University of Victoria, BC. I don't know if he still is. He published a paper called The Great Alaskan Terrain Wreck. Right. And I drew that literally as a, a terrain yeah, wreck. Yeah, it's just perfect. And you can view Ray's fantastic drawing right. on it's your page. Amazing. Well, we're going to put it on your page on our website, paleonerds.com. I worked with you on that. I got yeah. some feedback from you. Yeah. And, and thank you very much for that, Connie. And and really, yeah, this is so mind-blowing. How do you know? <laughs> I mean, here's the crazy thing. Mm. I know the geologists do coring, and then you can, through a core, depending on the strata, you can determine when the poles had shifted on the planets. You get a magnetic orientation. You can say, well, this sediment doesn't represent anything like North America. Wow, that's something in the Pacific or down by Australia. I get kind of all that, but when you look at the map of terrains in Alaska, it literally is a train wreck. It is a jumble of grocery store items before yes. they got bagged, and some are up top, some are pushed yeah. together, some are underneath here. It's it's literally a wreck. It is a wreck. It is. But and how do you know that it, it is like, can you, t is there an animation that goes backwards in time that shows all these individual pieces then slowly arriving at their various ages and then suturing on to each other? How do you tell the rocks of the rocks the, yeah, yeah. from the trains? Right. It's a great question. And what's interesting is that since we now know that Ray is on the Taku terrain, right, right. where you are in Ketchikan. T-A-K-U. T-A-K-U. He's in the areas of the most eastern terrains. So if you think away over to the west side of Prince of Wales Island, all of that being Alexander terrain, Alexander terrain was one of the last to arrive. So in downtown Ketchikan, there are tightly folded, highly contorted rocks that you can see close to sourdough bar, can't you? <laughs> I, as I remember, I mean, just mushed together. So you're seeing strata that is completely cooked. Yeah. But one of the reasons why in the Alexander terrain, so you go, what, a few miles, 50 miles west on that special island we talked about and over on the west side of Prince Wales Island, they are not metamorphosed in most places. They are not structurally deformed. They are not folded and faulted. And that's because... It was kind of like the caboose. They're younger. In the terrain wreck, all the first to arrive get continuously deformed and compressed as, you know, it's the toilet paper that's at the end of our grocery store run. <laughs> and so the Alexander train, it, it is deformed and there are areas because it, it's a huge, huge terrain, but it, it's, it's deformed into a large, what we call a syncline. It's a downfold but when you're working on either limb of it, the rocks are dipping. They're not horizontal in most places, although they are close to, but not quite on that special island. The rocks just have not been severely deformed because right. nothing has yet come from the so west. There's, there's good fossiling there, but the fossils, there are really no fossils on Revillagigedo Island because it's so cooked, but there's a few spots. Right. 
But where was the Alexander terrain? If I went back way, way oh. in deep time, was it way off by Australia? Was it where? Now Hawaii let me explain what that is. Though that the Alexander okay. terrain is Prince of Wales Island, Petersburg, yes. and then it goes north to uh, Juneau and Skag. Well, not Skagway, but not to Skagway. the to the left of Skagway. Well, <laughs> technically. Now, is that main body of water down on the wharf, Ray? Is that Tongass Narrows? Yes. Yeah, right below my house here. And so if you head out there, you get into the next strait, and then it's kind of a, a straight shoot Clarence up straight, to Petersburg yeah. Wrangell. Right. That's yeah. a major fault. Major fault. So Petersburg and Juneau are still in Taku terrain. So that's why you haven't gone there to look for really great fossils. So you've got to get west of that major fault boundary between Taku and Alexander to get into... So where was it then? The kind yeah, where of the was it? Okay. I, I, I tell people, hey, it was off of Australia, or maybe about where... Well, by the time the first paper was published in 1980, Peter Coney, University of Arizona, about terrain geology, mm -hmm. and Alaska was the stomping grounds for working that out. It added a new revolutionary aspect to plate tectonics that had been proposed in the 50s that people had not recognized. This was a revolutionary idea that, oh, so everything that is now North America from East Coast to West Coast was not necessarily part of North America going back millions of years. And so the challenge became, it's kind of the four questions we ask when we start working on any terrain. It's kind of the how, what, where, when. So we want to know, first of all, how did that terrain originate? Was it a volcanically active series of islands? Is this a microcontinent? Uh, is this a piece of California that got rifted north? So we want to know origins. And usually that's pretty easy to figure out. Unless the rocks are totally cooked, it's pretty straightforward. Alexander Terrain, we can tell the oldest rocks were coming from an isolated ocean basin, huge amounts of volcanism on the seafloor that eventually built up a volcanic edifice that breached the level of the sea but okay. was somewhere else. Okay, so that's kind of the first question. How did it originate? Then we want to know, when did it become married to North America? And there's lots of different ways that- Well, wait, when did it originate? As, when did it become a volcanic island? Okay, so we can age dating of these rocks that do contain radioactive elements. Right, so Alexander. For the Alexander train, we can go back about 600 million years. Whoa. So into the very latest um, part of the Precambrian. A lot of those rocks are highly tortured. They've been through deformational episodes. Those poor rocks. So that's a bit of a guess. But the one of the reasons why the Alexander Terrain has just been a treat for me to work on for so many years is because it has the best almost continuous record from the late Precambrian through the Mesozoic. So it's one of the most long-lived terrains that has a largely undeformed record. So that's why it's been so important. It's become kind of a linchpin for figuring out not only where was it located, but where adjoining terrains may have been located too. Okay, so that first question we said, how did it originate? We're, we're good at just looking at the rocks, figuring that out. Second question is, when did it marry? So it originated long ago, when did it marry? So we can use lots of different strategies to work that out, and other geologists have done that, not, not me. Um, you can look at overlap sequences like the Gravina. So the Gravina is not highly deformed. It has fossils and other aspects that yield age dates. And we can see that it overlaps Taku terrain proper and Alexander terrain proper. So it indicates those two must have been conjoined by the late Mesozoic. Mm. 
And since we then can work eastward, okay, the Taku terrain and then Yukon Tanana, we have sometimes it's magmatic rocks that have come up from the Earth's interior that have cross-cut terrain boundaries that clearly indicate those terrains were married by the time these so-called plutons intruded, which can be age-dated. Sometimes it's cross-cutting faults. So there's lots of different ways to figure out when a terrain became accreted. So a big balloon of magma coming up through will show that, oh, wow, these two were once co-joined and the magma exactly. separated them. That's why yep. we have one terrain turned into two. Sure, or two terrains joined. Right, right. Linked, right. And so that's called an amalgamated terrain. And the, the aspect that you just described is called pluton stitching. Right. Pluton stitching, kind of, I like it. I know, isn't that cool? So those are the first two questions. The last two, which I've been involved in, is what fossils and other means can we use to figure out where the terrain originated? Okay. And how far traveled? Oh. How far did it travel to become married to Western North America? And you traveled to these places to connect oh, them my up, gosh. did you not? Well, well, that's the thing about paleontology or geology. Right, you got to go see other people's rocks and fossils. So I always told students if they're looking for a profession that involves a lot of travel and they decide not to select the stewardess folder, <laughs> choose geology or paleontology. So, what is revealed in the amazing Paleozoic section, Prince of Wales Island area, Alexander Terrain, are a sequence of rocks of Silurian and Devonian age when, after volcanism ceased, so remember Alexander Terrain originated probably 600 million years ago, but we don't yet know where, volcanically active island chain, volcanism develops an island that eventually has well, goes into dormancy, so there's no volcanic activity for millions of years. And so as a dormant volcanic island, marine erosion produces a shallow marine shelf. So that's the first deposition of sedimentary rocks in which larvae must have been arriving from other ocean areas. And we see the first colonizers of this marine shelf or platform. So what age? So we're back about 430 million. And what we're now seeing in the Hecate limestone, I don't know if the formation names are of interest to you, but this is the Hecate limestone. Right. So the volcanic rocks are the Descon formation, and they are... Silurian. We're in the Silurian, right? Yeah, but in terms of oh, like 3,000 meters of volcanic rock piled up. That's wow. miles. So we're talking about major volcanic island. Okay, so then the Hecate limestone yields the first widespread fossils in the Alexander terrain of Silurian age. So we're at about 430, 425 million. And who were those earliest pioneering invertebrates to arrive? Brachiopods? Sponges. Oh, There sponge. are some brachiopods, but there are also sponges. There sponges. are some crinoids or sea lilies. And there are corals. There are algae. So all of these things are seen in fossil form. There are fossil microbes. So a way to imagine this, because I know you're both artists, you're so creative, you probably like to picture things. Think of it as an island that may not have anything subaerial. It may have, but that might have eroded and subsided. 
but there is a beautiful, probably aquamarine, Lagoon. shallow shelf where organisms, marine organisms, are starting to colonize that area and are precipitating limestone that becomes the Hecata formation. So the Hecata is mostly Silurian. If mostly, we go back yes. to the special island that you worked your PhD right. on, yeah. Dave and I have been lucky enough to go there. I've looked for trilobites there. I found just the tail of a trilobite. I yeah. keep asking you where the trilobite hole is. I know. But what is incredible about this beautiful island, chunk of the Devonian, there are areas, and you're painting a picture now for me because it is like walking on that Devonian reef when you're on that island because it, it, it literally, the, the beach is made of that. It is. Oh, okay, do, we're going to do a screenshot. I have lots of chunks of that, but I still want to know exactly. Do you have some of those trilobites in your own collection there? Or are they uh, all well, back Well, I at tell Colgate? you, for that special island, they are, they are not that common. I know. Very uncommon. You know me. I, I, I get obsessive about things like trilobites. Well, for someone like you who grew up in Corning, New York, that was your chance to find trilobites, Ray. <laughs> well, I know. I know. I found them when I came to Colgate. You know, we went, I went trilobiting. I have to tell Dave a funny story. Yeah. When Ray came to Colgate and gave a wonderful talk way back, I think it was 98. I was younger then, yeah. We were all younger then. And it was Salmon Chanted Evening with Ray Troll. That's right. He gave a talk, and right as I introduced him at the beginning of the talk, I had a little present. So the geology department said, let's give Ray a little present. <laughs> I know. And his eyes lit up. <sighs> and he was hoping that we had bought him a trilobite. Now, is that what a paleo nerd does, goes out and buys a trilobite? No, no. You, or does a paleo nerd one. go out and find a trilobite? He was so disappointed when he opened up this little box and there was a, it was an engraved hand lens, which every paleo nerd has to have. And it might've just been a Colgate University baseball cap. So you he know, tried to look happy, but he was really disappointed. She could read right through me. And this is actually kind of embarrassing because Connie, I've, I've known you for, for a couple decades now. And you've always been telling me about the glories of small fossils and oh, brachiopods yes. are cooler than trilobites and... And so, yeah, you, you, yeah, I still have that loop, you know, the, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the hand be lens. Better. So, okay. uh, I think it's time for that screenshot. Yeah. So, I got, I got, oh, I have, we oh, have, I have a 3D coral. And I'm going yes. to go, uh, you ready? You got one, Ray? Well, I have a clamshell, but it's not Devonian, but whatever it'll do. Here huh? we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Now, see, That's if it. I was holding that up, you guys would say, which is the fossil? <laughs> uh, okay. No, 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 no. It's, mm -hmm. uh, we're the, we're the old men here. It's, Connie, you don't have a fossil near you there? Only when I look in the mirror, Ray. Thank All you. right. No, but let's talk about that screenshotted fossil. So so what type of critter? Yeah, well, so it's this, coral. Yes. So when I go to that beautiful island, there yes. are these polka dot rocks. Yes. White against black, and they yes. look like spaghetti strands. They're yes. beautiful. Dave just held one up. What are we no, looking at, No, that's not spaghetti no, strands. No, no, this is the that's coral. That's too thick for spaghetti. So that's okay. a coral, but the polka dot ones, black and white, the tiny, the thin spaghetti strands is a, is a type of oh, extinct right. sponge. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, those are Which sponges. is a bryozoan, correct? No. Sponges no? are peripherans, uh -huh. so they form their own phylum. Yeah. And oh. one of the oldest animal phyla on, on the planet. Well, the what's coral, the bryozoans so that, was, that look like sponges? They can look similar. They can oh. look similar. So those are the moss animals. Those also form their own phylum 
probably have a sister relationship to the brachypods because they both have that unusual filter feeding device called a LOFO4. I'd like to hear Ray say that slowly five times. LOFO4, LOFO4. Can you paint us a picture of what that you spent a couple years on the special island at least? Well, I didn't live there continuously, sadly, but I did uh, Your summers. four or five field seasons there. Wow. Yeah, and a shout out to the Haymar family. If they, if there are any family members still living in Kaufman Cove or whatever, Hank and Arlie Haymar were like my second family. I lived with them part of the time while I did field work and what wonderful people. Well, you sorted out everything that lived on that island. Can you describe that island, that, that reef system for us visually? You were talking about the aqua. Right. Well, the, the one thing that we always do in, in geology or paleontology is start with the oldest rocks and work up so that we can understand the story from the moment it kind of unfolds till the final chapter. So then on, on that particularly um, special island, the oldest rocks show a kind of shallow restricted lagoon. Hmm. So initially there aren't many different types of fossils. You might find snails, which are beautiful, things called ostracods, Funny that Connie mentions ostracods. As we were recording this episode, I was in the process of trying to identify some little creatures in my backyard freshwater fountain that looked like little tiny swimming yellowish grains of rice, round in the back with two pointy bits at the front, kind of like miniature Millennium Falcons swimming around. I reached out to the genius sculpture and naturalist Gary Staub, who we interviewed in episode five, and he came back with the answer. They are ostracods, called seed shrimp, and are related to the Devonian relatives Connie is talking about. You can see a little movie and pictures of them on Connie's page at paleonerds.com. What do you think about that? Ostracods, which look like clams, but are actually more closely related to trilobites. They're in the arthropod phylum. So it's a little shrimp-like animal that lives inside a bivalved carapace. So they're ostracods and snails. And because of the low diversity, that's an indication that a marine environment wasn't fully normal marine, didn't have full oxygenation, might have had elevated temperatures or might be brackish. wonky salinity, might have been. And then as you move up through the section, that's when the rocks become a little bit darker. It's a very fine-grained limestone, and we see diversity slowly increase. And that's the section where I found molds, external impressions of trilobites, but never very many. That's where you typically find the spaghetti rock. And usually those polka-dotted rocks, you may uh, agree, they're, the spaghetti is just packed in there. Right. So once again, it's not a huge diversity of critters. So sponges and some corals and maybe some trilobites indicating that it was probably a little bit of an abnormal marine environment. And then as you continue up section, that's where I started finding a lot of brachiopods, a lot of massive sponges called stromatoporoids, more massive corals in what you're calling the reef. Mm -hmm. Probably not the biggest, strongest, more robust, most robust reef, but um, probably inhibiting waves enough to explain the massive size of some of the skeletons of the reef building organisms. And also some of the brachiopods in that part of the sequence have very strong ribs, indicating that they were adapted to rougher water conditions. Why is the preservation so amazing? Well, once again, because that was an outboard terrain, so it has never been deformed by another terrain coming in from the West. And also because that fine-grained limestone is weathering away from 
the coral specimen that you showed, revealing it in 3D. So it's uh, a slightly different composition of the coral from the surrounding matrix that is allowing it to weather out in 3D relief. No, but what, what environmental conditions existed for the preservation when it died? Okay, so great question, because we know that for to fossilize anything, it really takes two things. You have to have typically some kind of hard part, a skeleton, bones, teeth. So all of the invertebrate fossils that we're talking about had a calcium carbonate, a lime skeleton. Okay, so all the soft parts are gone. The animals died. It's gone to coral heaven, clam heaven, brachiopod heaven. <laughs> and then the second ingredient for fossilization is it has to be rapid burial. So we're talking geologically. It doesn't have to be over a two-day period. But as that reef was building, more sediment was accumulating on top of the older. And so organisms that had died earlier, their shells would have survived. The soft parts are gone. But there's enough fine-grained sediment that is bearing those specimens so that they are later revealed. So in you're their saying life, okay. life is burying life, or is it just sure. uh, mass wasting from the volcano? Uh, no. So on that particular island, there are no ash beds. It'd be great if there were. There's actually the underlying rocks. So in other words, the oldest limestones there are sitting on top of a type of volcanic rock, oh. but then it is no longer interbedded with the limestone. And I think those underlying volcanic rocks are so altered that they've never yielded a good date for that. One of the things we talk about in paleontology and, and help our students to understand is that in something like the Burgess Shale, where there was a catastrophic mass calamity and almost instantaneous burial to explain soft part preservation, that was like a snap of the fingers. In most places like the special island we're talking about, or for some of the trilobite beds in New York State where I took students, it's what we call time average preservation. So uh, you walk off the California coast today or the Alaska coast, and right. you see all these clam shells and snail shells. Well, if you dig down in there, there'll be more dead clam and snail shells. You dig down farther. And so those individuals were alive at the bottom of your little shovel pit maybe 100 years ago, go farther 1,000 years ago. A lot of things are being lost so it's kind of an averaging over time of organisms that lived in that community. And there's always data loss. So that's something that we talk about in science. We always indicate our data limitations, but enough retention so that you retain insight into a community that existed over thousands of years. One of the things I've found when I've been digging on the island, uh, there's some like black limestone that you can split and oh, there's sure. impressions and yes. that, those are where I've found the trilobite impressions, yes. but I've also right. found orthocone ammonoids. Are you sure they're ammonoids and not nautiloids? Well, they're the long, you know, like an orthoceros, orthocone. That would be a nautiloid. So and, a nautiloid. All and right. to tell the difference from an ammonoid, if you can see those chamber walls, the internal chamber walls, which uh -huh. will be preserved in an impression or a mold, if they are gently curved or straight, it's a nautiloid. Okay. If there's any flexure, or really folded, then they're in the ammonoid clade. Well, and then there's uh, stromatolites, uh, stro stromatolite reefs. Stromatoporoids. Stromatoporoids. <laughs> Easy so for you to say. I know. Isn't that terrible? Stromatoporoid? What is yes. that? Yes. Okay, big difference. They're using the same Greek or Latin derivation. Stroma. stroma meaning... Layers. 
flat layers. Oh. In the stromatoporoid, the P-O-R part's important because that's for porous. That's a sponge. They're all pores. Filter oh. feeding through a porous skeleton. Stromatolite, same thing, table-like flat. It says less sugar. Yeah, light. <laughs> but oldest continuously formed ecosystem on the planet, microbial deposits. Right, microbes rule. So important difference and, and always confusing. And I, I've, I've listened to enough of your podcasts to know that Dave has mentioned a couple of times if he could go back, he would go back to the origin of life. Is that correct? Yes, I would. And you- We're going to ask you later, not yet. I know, and I'm ready. So if you, after you saw the first bacteria- evolving out of the organic sludge. We now think within half a billion years, several hundred million years, the first communities formed. Bacteria united were trapping and binding sediment just because their sheaths are a little bit sticky, forming the first layered sedimentary rocks, which are stromatolites. Oh, okay. So those are bacterial deposits. They're often mat-like. They're still living today. Shark Bay, Western Australia. Australia is stromatolite right. mecca for seeing living stromatolites. There are many important stromatolite deposits in the Hecate Formation, so Prince of Wales Island area. I did not find any on the special island we're talking about. Instead, it was the massive calcareous sponge called okay. stromatoporoid. But Which yet is a there mouthful. was absolutely, I've looked, there's never been a shark tooth or any mm. sort of vertebrate fossil ever, any chunk of anything found there. So that nope. did not preserve in that environment. That's right. They were for sure around. I mean, diversity might have been low because right. this island was isolated from continental margins. But certainly pelagic fish of the Devonian period. In our earlier discussion, we still haven't determined where haven't. this island came from. I know. Should we do that now? I yeah. think maybe we should. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's a very long story. There's like so many. It's like a. What's the abbreviated version? Condense it because we <laughs> yeah, have, we're, we're running out we're of time running. and we have yeah. so much right, we want to so... ask you about. That special island doesn't help as much as older rocks in determining where in the mid-Paleozoic, after the volcanism ceased for periods of time, this lovely marine platform surrounding the island was occurring. So it is sponge fossils. It is microbe fossils. It is clam fossils and to some extent brachiopod fossils that from the Hecate formation, that Silurian deposit indicate the panhandle of southeastern Alaska was once in the proto-Arctic Ocean basin. What? Close to Western Europe. Really? Close to what is now the Canadian Arctic Islands. And close to Siberia, which back in the day was in a subtropical tropical setting like Ray's backyard. You mean... So, we're kind of Russian in a way, Siberia. Well, if Euro you Mountains. look at those animations of Pangaea yes. and the, and the yes. all the continents, some of them actually rotate so yes. that a south south coast yes. becomes a north coast. And, yes, and it's uh, it's amazing when you see those uh, animations. In fact, I'll put a link in this page. If you look at the animation for the late Silurian, it will show you clustered near the Paleo Equator. 
was what is called Laurentia, which means sort of North America proper with many parts missing. Not too far away from what is called Baltica, which is the fancy word for Western Europe, hmm. kind of the Baltic states, Baltic Sea area today. And to the north, Siberia rotated, many geologists think, but it's controversial, 180 degrees from its orientation today. And there was a subtropical seaway called the Euralian Seaway, because Euralian when Siberia seaway. rotates yeah. wow. and joins Mary's Baltica on eastern Europe's edge, it forms the Ural Mountains millions of years later. And it is along the Euralian Seaway, where not just the paleontologic data now, but also isotopic data, detrital zircons, which are a whole other thing we probably don't need to talk about, but sedimentary evidence that clearly lie. Alexander Train, mid-Paleozoic, along what is essentially the Proto-Arctic Ocean. But that's also the Southern Hemisphere. Nope. It's not. Nope. So we've got everything by the late Silurian Devonian for the continents we're talking about that are still in the Northern Hemisphere. They are straddling the Paleo-Equator. Right. And we can tell that because paleomagnetic data, which we probably shouldn't get into, but the voluminous amounts of limestone. Limestone, which is made of calcium carbonate, lime, like the lime powder we use on rugby fields, football fields, forms preferentially to great masses under equatorial conditions. And that certainly describes the Alexander Train for middle Paleozoic rocks, huge, vast amounts of limestone. Wow. Wow. You know, I mean, that's the thing about when you start getting in the, into deep time and looking at the earth in this incredible way, it just feels like the ground is shifting underneath you and yeah. landscapes are liquid and mountains are it rising is, and but going the, away. It's the trippy. It's, yeah, but the scary wow. part is that, you know, we see an earthquake, a major earthquake, three or four in our lifetimes, you know, above 8.0 in our lifetimes. But in order for these terrains to have done what they've done, it would have to have been a million 9.0 earthquakes in order for all these islands to suture themselves to the North American continent. It's mind-blowing. It is. And think about places like Indonesia today, all of those islands off of South Asia wedged in there between um, Asia and Australia. The Australian plate is moving north. Yep. So after today's lesson, what do we <laughs> think is going to happen to all those Indonesian islands in the future? They're going to become terrains sutured onto the Chinese landmass. Exactly. And Australia will be sutured to the south margin. And at some point in the future, there probably will be another Pangaea. There probably will be another supercontinent. We'll all come together again, man. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we will stay united because we're in this together. But where is Hawaii going? Is Hawaii headed to Asia or is it coming Northwest. my way? Northwest no, plate to... motion is towards the northwest. Yeah, it's going to go okay. to the Kamchatka Peninsula. Yep, we're going to lose that, those Hawaiian islands for sure. Wow. So kind of just kind of switching gears, uh, you were at Colgate many years, a great professor. Yes. I know you've uh, you've turned out a lot of paleontologists, some of whom I've hung out with. And you teach undergrads, and I was reading through your research work. There's some paper that you did on teaching undergrads about uh, anatomy using uh, chicken wings oh yeah what's that hey, wait wait why is that wrong why is that odd why would you not use chicken wings well well tell me what and you actually well, did a paper about this what, what was that about so this is the totally cool thing for anybody who is crazy about dinosaurs go to the supermarket 
look for chicken wings or could be turkey wings around Thanksgiving or whatever else they might have where the tips of the wings have not been chopped off. And there's feathers? <laughs> well, you might see the little nodes, but you want the whole, you want the end of the wing. And often, if you have chicken wings, because for every college student, that's the midnight snack, right? We're going right. to go have wings. Well, they often chop off the tips, but in the grocery store, I could, because I've been a vegetarian for years, it's only after looking at 4 billion Thanksgiving cover stories from cooking magazines that I finally said, what the heck is that thing on the chicken wing? Right, okay, the so if you get those chicken wings or turkey wings from the store without the ends clipped, you will see that there is a very pointed ouch element which is the largely unmodified remnant of the dinosaur thumb claw that was never fully fused to the rest of the fingers in the dinosaur hand to form the bird's wing. Oh, that little guy, the little Alula. thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah Lula. Hallelujah, Alula. And if, seriously, if you get these things unclipped, it is amazingly sharp. It is the dinosaur's thumb claw. Wow. Now, why does that persist? It's never been fully fused. I grew up in a family of bird watchers. I married a bird watcher and they didn't know, so I looked it up. In all living birds that fly, the feature is there. And it's thought to create a little micro vortex that aids in aerodynamic stability. Wow. So the... But the T-Rex, which has got only two fingers left, one okay. is the Alula, right? Okay, T-Rex, of course, has those really weird hands. Uh, so I would be thinking more of the Maniraptorans, so those more closely related to birds. Right. And in that case, yeah, with T-Rex, a little bit different. I'm not I sure it, which it digits is, it, are retained in T-Rex. It's the uh, thumb and the and the first finger. Okay. But actually, one of the things I've thought about that would help uh, get people to understand... Uh, their own anatomy, and actually when they're buying chicken wings, why don't they uh, peddle it as uh, humerus radius and ulna? Hey, why not? You know? Why I not? Because uh, the humerus your... is so funny anyway. <laughs> there we go. Well, that's cool that you're teaching that. That worked. Well, I do want to ask you, Connie, I think it's come time now. Are you ready for the time travel question? Because I'm going to hit you with it. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm white-knuckling it. Okay. <laughs> Let's go back in time, Connie, and you're driving. When are we going back to? What do we want to see too? What do you want to see? Okay. So since this is time travel, we're starting in the present. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and it, let's take, let's say it takes five minutes to get back to where I really want to go. On the way, oh. I want to hover over central Oregon 100,000 years ago. And I want to look down on the Pleistocene megafauna of Fossil Lake. Oh, oh, cool. Interesting. Extinct flamingo, extinct eagles. Mammoths, cave bears, very nice, all kinds of things. All right, and I've written a play about that that I hope after COVID will oh. be educational outreach for uh -huh. Oregon students. Okay, then interesting. We're going back, so we're going to hover. We're going to zip by the Gobi Desert, eighty million <laughs> years ago, because we haven't had a chance to talk about. It. That's okay. Colgate ended up with the first whole dinosaur egg ever found in I the Gobi that. Desert. That's right. And I've been to the Gobi, searching for that original locality, not found, but close to it. 
and I would love to look down on the oviraptor dinosaurs as they were group nesters found fossilized over their nest clutches. Cool. I would love to see that. Love but that. I would go back to the late Silurian. I would uh, love to hover over that Euralian Seaway and see how much of what me and my students got right, what we missed, what wasn't preserved. But I would like to look down on that Equatorial Seaway, which I'm sure was a beautiful turquoise greeny blue, mm. and look through the clear water at all of the amazing invertebrates that were living there. Yeah. The invertebrates? And also, yeah, I've studied the invertebrates, but she there's certainly- She don't care about us vertebrates. She's I do, I do. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't care about us backbone creatures. Well, remember, the spineless yes. wonders, 90% of all animals. It's true. It's true. And they are, they're not as charismatic as some of the chordates, but we wouldn't be here without all of our invertebrate pals. Yeah, we self-centered chordates. Hey, what can you do? <laughs> all right, well, some of us self-centered chordates seem to believe in crap they read on social media. <laughs> And it is rampant, the conspiracy theories. And every day on my newsfeed, on the right-hand column, is a fact checker where someone puts together all these things that were said today and yesterday. And I can't believe one of them was, um, is it true Biden turned the age of consent back to eight years old? Right. I can't believe that that is I even... I heard that on, one. I can't... Well, neither have I until I saw it in my column of the things that are being fact-checked. The fact that anybody would even think that. Right. Right. That is The fact that that's even there as a, exactly. as a question. Right. Makes me want to jump out of my skin because of the ignorance. Right. So as an educator, how can we combat the disease of misinformation? Right. Oh, we are living in troubling times. I must say that the blanket was pulled back for me during this whole COVID pandemic and, and political situation. And I suppose the, the main thing I've talked about with family and friends is that knowledge is power. Power means control of others. And so if you can change the narrative, whether or not it's true, I think that's what we've been seeing. And science, of course, is, I, I never really refer to it as the hunt for truth. It's really just asking and trying to answer questions about the natural world. That's all we're trying to do. So there's unfortunately still a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions and fear of science. But I'll tell you, science educators are working their butts off to explain things in a, in a jargon-free way and to make it interesting for everybody. So we just have to keep at it, obviously. And if, if I had a, a blue sky, pie in the sky wish, it would be that every kid in North America would be required to take a science course on dinosaurs. I, I am not a, a vertebrate specialist, as we've said, but I'm as captivated by dinosaurs as everybody else. And you can teach everything in science that you'd like to cover, math and quantitative skills and the whole thing, everything. using dinosaurs as that charismatic, extinct, mostly extinct group. And you can discuss evolution in a way that's non-threatening. And you can obviously talk about so many things. And I, anyway, so I am saddened by the situation, but we don't give up hope and science isn't everything, but it does improve lives in so many ways. So we just have to keep doing paleo nerd podcasts and mm -hmm. other things like them 
and going to museums where we can see beautiful images drawn by paleo artists like Ray Troll and hear ventriloquists that probably embrace science in ventriloquist programs, do they not? Uh, kind of. My last show was about, actually, my last show, I, Ted E, was about the damage that social media is doing to our, our lives and our screen time is, is doubled. Right. Tripled. But it was so interesting. I don't know if you saw this article in Time, which I saw after. I read um, a book written in 1836. It was James Fenimore Cooper this summer. I was just looking for something to read, and it's called A Residence in France. And I didn't end up finishing it because it was all about the political situation in France at the time. But there was a cholera outbreak, and this is what was covered in Time magazine not too long ago. And all the same kinds of things happened. Misinformation chaos, conspiracy theories, denial, the, the rich fleeing the urban areas and going to their country homes, dead bodies left out in the streets. I mean, thousands of people dying every day. And it was the same kind of reaction. And in the Time article, it said something like, there is this tendency for people to choose the devil that they know, rather than to, it's too scary to move to another narrative if it's not something you've ever been introduced to or it's yeah. from people you don't know. And so I think it's what has been a longstanding, I guess, tradition of homo sapiens is now much more evident because of social media, but I'm not sure it's a new behavior. But it is sad to think that we haven't- Well, no, we've become tribal. Yeah. We only believe what we hear around our campfire, and you're not willing to hear what the neighboring... Right. Well, I think there's something that happens with uh, pandemics, and it's it's such a stressor, and uh, fear is rampant, and you're likely... That's when you start seeing these uh, different ideas for, this is what's going on, that's what's right. going yeah. on. Right. And people grabbing onto that, but... Uh, right. I'm glad that you talked about dinosaurs because dinosaurs are kind of a gateway. And well, I wonder dinosaurs if... are the answer. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, that's that's why I taught a course for years at Colgate and Smith College before it on dinosaurs and extinct mammals because that was a vehicle for a lot of students who were quite honest. I hate science. I just hated science in elementary school. I'll come. I'll come listen to dinosaurs. Exactly. And there, you've got them in the door. So exactly. more power to you, Connie. Way yeah. to go. Well, Dave and I use dinosaurs too, you know, but you why know, I, not? Want, I want you to know, Connie, that I love microfossils and I love brachiopods. Maybe not <gasps> as much as you, but I do, Connie. I, I know you do, Ray. And thank you so it. much for, uh, for this been awesome uh, for being well, here you know with what? us Fantastic. and teaching you so much over the years. I, I read about the train wreck when I read John McPhee's book, Coming Into the Country. Yes, and also his In Suspect Terrain. Yeah. Yes, both. In Suspect right. Terrain is yeah. one of Assembling the, California. Assembling yeah. California, yeah. There you go. Amazing. In fact, I had to read Assembling California twice to understand the time timeline of that. Right. But you made the picture in my mind of these island slivers, these mini microcontinents arriving at the shore and jumbling just... Oh, it's fantastic. I have a clear picture in my head. And thank you, Connie. Awesome. For doing that Thanks for, for the me. great questions and for the interest. And come back to Southeast Alaska. I hope you're coming back hey, at some point. Hey, hope so. Conference. It's my favorite place in the world. And uh, we'll uh, go to some special places if we're we all looking. Will. We can bring our ventriloquist buddy along. Why not? <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks right. to both Thanks, of Connie. you. Awesome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, that was great. You know, during that whole interview, I had on my other monitor this picture of 
Southeast Alaska and all the terrain. So that's oh, kind of yeah? how that's how I knew some of the names. Oh, but 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 their color it's color coded. It looks like something out of a coloring book. It's it's absolutely insane. I'll have a link to uh, this picture on Connie's page on our paleonerds.com website. But and, it, and it, I'll it, share it, that terrain wreck uh, yeah. image as well. That'll be there yeah. that, where I drew it out. It's sort of a fun one. Hey, Dave, what what's that new word we learned today? Alochthonus. 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 A L O C A. Sorry. A L L O C H. Wait. A L L O C H T H O N O U S. Alochthonus. You yeah. practiced that, didn't you? I had to. I had to. I think she was very impressed. Well, you know, what's great about all these episodes is. You do the homework. You give me the bullet points on what you as a paleo nerd want to ask our guest. And then I, most of these, some of these guests you've, you've met and known, and you've known their uh, paleontological yeah, careers. Yeah, I've known Connie for a long time. Yeah. yeah but others not. You actually open up an entire rabbit hole for each guest before we even talk to them. Yeah, I and wrote then, down teaching with chicken wings, too. Yeah, so I was like, yeah. what? And, yeah, no, and we got there. And so it's so great because I go down these rabbit holes, and I love her explanation of the terrains hitting North America and, and how they don't get subducted. They get abducted. A conveyor belt and uh, checking out at the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, was that, was that, that was great. That was great. And it made sense, too. You know, uh, uh, Larry King recently passed away, and he's known as, like, you know, the best interviewer ever. I mean, yeah. you and I are doing all right. But one of the interesting things I was reading about old Larry is that if he had a guest on who had written a book, he made it a point to not read the book. Right. And uh, so that he was genuinely curious and he didn't know the answers to things. But, you know, we have to know a little bit. We have to know the science of these well, things. yeah, you know? I think... I don't want to go in cold, you know? I mean, I want to pay some respect to their, their research and know and have an intelligent conversation with them. But... Also, if we don't know, I mean, we're genuine, man. So that's what's good about what we're yeah. doing. But anyways, it was a good one, Dave. It was a yeah, good it was a good one. So listen, uh, I want to ask all of you listening, please, please review us on iTunes. Please share this to your friends. If you have any questions or any paleontologist you'd like us to interview, please go to our Facebook page, Paleo Nerds Pod, on Facebook and ask the question. We'll be sure to answer. We read every single review. We read every single question. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, the website is rather extensive, and there is an email link there in the website, too, that yeah. you can send an email to. It's where you get to see all the cool pictures, man. Yeah. And the photos yeah. of, of our guests. And if I've and got your artwork. And you are great. Ray Troll oh, artwork. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Dave. But yeah. hey, been a good one, Dave. Wait, were you just swallowing peanuts? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm learning the foibles, uh, the ins and outs uh, of showbiz. Yeah, and, never yeah, eat you know, peanuts before you record a podcast. <laughs> if you if you know anything about hanging out with me, and even Kirk Johnson commented on this, is the uh, first thing you got to do when you work with Ray Troll is feed the troll so if we go too uh, long i have to go eat something yeah i, get, I hear you i don't know i get <laughs> i have needs david i have needs all right there from uh, subsistence living and subsistence eating here in ketchikan alaska yeah you mean oh this is the goodbye part yeah i'm signing off for beautiful ketchikan alaska here by the sea and it's tis a beautiful day all right, well, I'm going to say goodbye from Ojai, California, where I had a plumbing break, and I'm going to go fix that right now. 
All right. Water's important, isn't it? Well, it's been good. All right. Over and out. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd.